It's Friday, August 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Michael Gargiulo, known as the Hollywood Ripper or the Boy Next Door Killer, has been found guilty of the murder of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno, and the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. This case gained a lot of attention because of the gruesome nature of the killings, which involved multiple stabbings, and also because actor Ashton Kutcher testified during the trial. Andrew Mollenbeck, West Coast reporter for iHeartMedia, joins us to break down the story. Next, the mystery surrounding Jeffrey Epstein's suicide continues to grow, as an autopsy found that he suffered multiple breaks in his neck bones, including the hyoid bone, which can occur in those that hang themselves, but is more associated with strangulation. We're also learning that the two guards assigned to monitor him fell asleep and falsified records. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for more. Finally, there have been a lot of worries of a coming recession for the United States. But what is also adding to the concern is a synchronized global slump. Nine key economies are already in a recession or on the verge of one. For now, U.S. consumers are holding up much of the global economy, but things can change very quickly. Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The methodical and systematic slaughter of women. This hobby was plotting the perfect opportunity to attack women with a knife in and around their homes. Joining us now is Andrew Mollenbeck, West Coast reporter for iHeartMedia. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, sure thing. We're going to be talking about the Hollywood Ripper case. He's also known as the Boy Next Door Killer. Michael Gargiulo was just found guilty in Los Angeles uh, for two murders and the attempted murder of another woman. Andrew, tell us a little bit about this story. Well, these attacks, again, the two murders and attempted murder, go all the way back to 2001 in Hollywood, and they continued all the way until 2008. But the story actually goes farther back than that. Prior to coming to L.A., prosecutors say, Michael Gargiulo also murdered a woman in the Chicago area. Now, that goes all the way back to 1993. And the M.O. in all of these is similar. One of the other nicknames that prosecutors gave to him is the boy next door killer. And the reason behind that is in each of these, he found himself living right next to or even in the same building as the women that he would kill. He looked or found women who were attractive Then he would stalk them, and once he found a way to get them alone, he would just viciously stab them for the purpose of apparently some sort of sexual thrill. There was never an allegation that he actually sexually assaulted them. It was just brutal stabbings, multiple murders here in the L.A. area. Again, also another one in the Chicago area. So we're talking about decades, the last of which was in 2008, And that was when a woman was able to fight him off. Uh, She was stabbed severely, but she did survive. Let's talk about Ashley Ellerin. She's one of the women in Los Angeles. And uh, one big moment in this trial that kind of elevated a little bit more was that she was either a girlfriend or she was going to be going out with actor Ashton Kutcher. And he actually testified to you know what he saw he was supposed to go out on a date with her and that just kind of elevated this a little bit more it just brought it out into the public sphere a little more 
that's how it got so much national and even international attention that, of course, early on in this months-long trial, Ashton Kutcher actually did take the stand. And he was talking about that night that he was planning to go over to Ashley Ellerin's home in the Hollywood area and pick her up. But by the time that he got there, she had already been murdered. And so that was, again, very early in this case. This went on for months, but that's really what put it on the radar for a lot of people. But even apart from that, she was just one of these series of women who really had no connection at all with this killer. But just they found themselves living next to him. And if he found them to be one of his targets, maybe they were attractive, he would go after them. So she just happened to be one of the targets Uh, at that time. Ashton Kutcher wasn't even the famous actor that he is, at least now. Uh, He was acting, but uh, he became well-known far after this one, going back all the way to 2001. But that was the first of the attacks in the L.A. area. When he testified, he said that, you know, he showed up late for the date. He thought maybe she left and he peeked inside the apartment and he said, oh, it looked messy. I just saw a bunch of red stains. I thought it was red wine on the floor. Little did he know these were the blood stains from from the brutal murder. And that's, you you mentioned it earlier, Gargiulo would you know viciously stab these women multiple times, 40 times, something like that. It was pretty horrible. We are talking about cutting off of body parts and, and really leaving them as symbols. What happens now, though, is the jury, which found him guilty of the two counts of murder and then the one count of attempted murder, the jury is going to reconvene later and then begins the sanity phase where jurors will have to decide what kind of mental state Michael Gargiulo was in when he was carrying out these series of attacks. So that's going to begin shortly after that will be the penalty phase in this particular trial. But down the road, he still does face a murder charge in the Chicago area. Now, this again goes all the way back to a high school friend. Uh, So that will happen after this case in the Los Angeles area completely wraps up with the sentencing phase. Is that where the defense was going throughout this trial, that he was in a fit of insanity? No, the the defense really was arguing that DNA did not specifically link Gargiulo to a number of the attacks. They argued that it was more circumstantial, that he lived in the area, but they tried to make the case that there wasn't really good, hard evidence at each one of these linking Gargiulo to the murder. So that's really what they were laying the groundwork for. I mean, that just sounds a little weird, at least with regards to the case of Michelle Murphy. She's the one that fought him off. He was on top of her, stabbing her, and she grabbed the knife with her two hands and pushed him off and all. But they matched DNA from that scene to him. So he is at least placed in that instance. He was placed there. Right, and that was the most concrete of the evidence of the attack because of the knife blade uh, drew blood and, and left a blood trail in her apartment. And that one was in the Santa Monica area of Los Angeles. Uh, so that one was some pretty good evidence. In another case, uh, the booties that were found at one scene, he also had uh, similar booties in his attic of where he lived. But again, the defense was kind of arguing, well, that's just circumstantial that he happened to have the same booties. Doesn't mean he did it. But right. yeah, that last attack where the woman fought him off in Santa Monica that had the specific DNA linking it to him. Andrew Mollenbeck, West Coast reporter for iHeartMedia. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, you got it. Every expert that has made a statement about the hyoid bone 
says, sure, it may be more common in strangulation in a homicidal way, but it can still happen when you hang yourself. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for joining us, Victor. Thank you. We're going to be following up on the story of Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, this is just kind of a roller coaster ride of a story. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. He was found hanging in his cell in New York, but the new twist in the story is that some details of the autopsy report have been released. And in that he suffered multiple breaks in his neck bones, one specifically called the hyoid bone. And that's right near the Adam's apple in men. The thing with this one, and this lends itself to all the conspiracy theories is that while this bone can break when people hang themselves, it's often more common in homicides by strangulation. This leads to this whole discussion about whether he was killed beforehand. Victor, tell us a little bit more about what we know about this autopsy. You mentioned that it's leading into more of a discussion of whether or not he was killed or committed suicide. Every expert that we've been reading about and that we've been that has made a statement about the hyoid bone says, sure, it may be more common in strangulation in a homicidal way, but it can still happen when you hang yourself, especially if you're above the age of 40. Right. Jeffrey Epstein is 66. 66. Exactly. The Washington Post article wrote that the hyoid bone, when you're younger, almost acts as a three point joint. But when you get older, forms more of a U shape. And once you hit past 40, that thing gets really easy to break. Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN, he's their chief medical correspondent, said the autopsy does say there was multiple bones broken in the neck also, which lends itself to the hanging. While you're hanging, you're going to break multiple bones. The larger question remains, how could such a high-profile inmate be left alone for so much time so that this could happen? We've gotten reports that he either hurled himself off the top bunk or he just kind of was standing on his feet or either his knees and leaned forward to allow for the hanging to to happen. We're still not sure. There was no video of him at the cell, which is also kind of a suspicious thing. Why was there no video around there? We're learning a little bit more about the circumstances around it. These two guards, you know, he was in the special housing unit where he's supposed to be checked on every 30 minutes. And these two guards did not check on him for three hours before they found him hanging in his cell. They found him at 6.30 in the morning. Tell us what we know about those two guards. I hope people take away the right things from this story because I hope people aren't saying, oh, Jeffrey Epstein, big story. There might be an issue with the prison system, small story. When in reality, it's these big things that are wrong with the prison system lead to stories like Jeffrey Epstein the first guard that they got here, he was one of the staff members and actually came back to volunteer to get some extra overtime pay and just help out with detainees. The second one is an officer who had been working overtime because the jail was so overstaffed. And when I'm saying there's issues with the system that led up to this, that's the kind of thing. Earlier reports were saying that Staff members were working 60 to 70 hours. Right. And yeah, they fell asleep and they doctored the documents to make sure so that they didn't get in trouble. But that's kind of the issue. That's exactly what the attorney general, William Barr, was saying. There was 
serious irregularities in what was happening. The guards fell asleep. They didn't check on him for three hours prior. And it makes total sense. 3.30 in the morning. I mean, you're tired. Everybody else is probably asleep. So the action is low. So they took a moment. They probably knocked out and and didn't do anything about it. But then it comes to falsifying those records. They wrote down that they did check on him every 30 minutes. And that could be a federal offense for those guards. Those guards, from my understanding, have stopped talking to investigators. They've lawyered up. And, you know, they're worried for their jobs. And on the flip side of it, the warden has been reassigned to another post for the meantime while this investigation plays out. The warden is the one who signed off on taking Jeffrey Epstein off of suicide watch, even though there was a, a suicide scare 12 days before. On July 23rd, he attempted suicide. And then six days later, he was just taken off of it. He was meeting with doctors there and they deemed him to not be a risk to himself anymore. Six days after a suicide attempt. Come on, that's pretty quick. The other thing that happened there, he was in that special housing unit. The inmates are supposed to be paired up with another inmate in the same cell. Somebody was taken out earlier on that Friday and then Friday night into Saturday morning, Jeffrey Epstein hung himself. So, I mean, this just all adds fuel to the fire of how such a high profile inmate could get away with this and conspiracy theories abound from there. We'll keep monitoring this. It, it, it's the story just keeps getting weird turn after weird turn more and more bizarre yeah, as and, it goes on. And we'll see how it develops. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. If you believe history repeats itself, and it certainly seems to happen in economics for the last 50 years before we've had a recession, about a year to two before we've had a recession, we have seen an inverted yield curve. So that's why people are so on edge. Joining us now is Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Good to be here. There's been a lot of talk about the U.S. possibly going into a recession uh, although there's some other indicators that seem to point otherwise. But overall, you know, we all know that we're in this big global economy right now, and it seems like we're going into this synchronized global slump. There's a lot of key countries that are either in a recession or on the verge of recession. And, it, you know, people are worried how that could impact us also. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. When you think back to the Great Recession and the financial crisis that started in the U.S. and then spread to everybody else, and what we're seeing today in 2019 is the exact opposite. A number of other prominent economies around the world are sick, if not seriously ill. And the question is, is that going to cause the United States to become sick as well? So some of the major concerns that we're seeing, China is definitely slowing in its economy. Another big concern for the United States is Europe. Germany just unexpectedly controlled in the second quarter, so its economy was actually shrinking. The United Kingdom also shrank in the second quarter, its economy. And with those big Brexit fears right. coming up in, in the end of October, that could easily tip into a recession. So one of the America's large trading partners in Europe is obviously faltering and certainly isn't providing any help to the global growth right now. And so, um, you know, the, the United States, typically economists say, oh, don't worry about what's going on overseas. The U.S. is really powered by the American consumer. 70% of the economy is built on you, me, and everybody else we know going out and buying things. And so far, that seems to be the case. So again, there's not like a major panic in the United States, but there's this big, deep question of how long can the U.S. 
stay solid when so many players around the world right. are I, in trouble. I like the way you put it in your article, and I guess we could all take a little pride in that. But for now, the U.S. consumers are the bright spot holding up much of the global economy. You know, you were talking about consumer spending. We've also have added jobs for 106 consecutive months. Unemployment is at an all-time low right, or 50-year low right now, which is all great. But these other countries are impacting us now too. One of the big common problems that they all have is that they're all dependent on selling goods overseas. They're big export-driven economies, and that's what's really taken a big hit right now. That's certainly the case with Germany, with South Korea, with Singapore. So a number of these countries have really built their entire economy on manufacturing goods and selling them abroad, particularly to the United States and to China. And so with China looking weaker, they're not buying as much. And with President Trump's trade war, uh, that's slowed a number of purchases in different parts of the world. So I think one of the interesting things we saw this week is just a good example of how this spills over. The the problems overseas spill back into the United States, and that's this crazy inverted yield curve (laughs) everyone keeps talking about. And it's a little wonky and kind of hard to explain, but people keep saying that that is signs of a looming recession for us. If you believe history repeats itself, and it certainly seems to happen in economics for the last 50 years, before we've had a recession, about a year to two before we've had a recession, we have seen an inverted yield curve. The easy explanation of inverted yield curve is, think about if your neighbor came to you and wanted to borrow some money, and they said, I could either pay you back in two years or in 10 years. You might say, yeah, my neighbor's probably still going to be around in two years. I trust they'll pay the money back. But 10 years is a long time, so you would probably (laughs) charge them some interest or ask for some sort of security that you're guaranteeing you're going to get paid back. And that's kind of what normally happens in the bond market, right, is you see higher interest rates on a 10-year bond because that's a longer time to lock your money up than two-year. But when it inverts, what that means is suddenly the two-year bond is actually has a higher interest rate. So people are more worried about losing their money in two years versus 10 years. And that, you scratch your head and say, that shouldn't be right. And you're right. The only time it's not right is when people are so concerned about the future. Are there any other warning signs that we have here in the United States that something bad could happen at any moment? The U.S. economy appears to have peaked last year. And so we're clearly on the downslope. The question is, are we going to plateau for a while or are we on a down, 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 down slope? And nobody really knows right, right. now. Everybody, both investors in Wall Street, folks in the White House, sort of inherently know that things are pretty good today still. But we also know that, gee, you know, it wasn't as good as last year. And are we going to keep sliding? And so you're right. Probably the biggest fear right now, and this is where that global impact comes into play, is once sentiment starts to shift, it's very hard to stop that negative spiral. So far, we haven't seen massive evidence of that on the consumer side, even if you look at things like hotel bookings or restaurant spending or spending on going to the gyms. That still looks pretty decent. But where you have seen the pullback already is businesses have really closed their wallets. They are not spending as much on new factories, on on equipment. They are not making those investments. And do we get to a point in the next few months where they also stop hiring? That's the big, big concern. Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 